Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I apologize to those of you who would normally watch our videos. Um, I have snuck out uh, of my home and gone somewhere where the the connection isn't as good as we would need to record the video, so that's entirely my fault, and I apologize. Um, very excited to be back hosting. I haven't hosted in a few weeks. I was sick a couple of weeks ago, but I'm back. A um, couple of things I wanted to cover before we get into the show. The first is um, that AP scores are out, and what we're seeing is that there seem to be, scores seem to be a little bit all over the place, and students who we would have anticipated would have done really well on some tests are not getting scores that are lining up with what they thought they might do and then actually doing extraordinarily well on tests that they are surprised about. Um, so then the second thing that I wanted to share with you all is that um, I was on Twitter and College Board in the course of a conversation with another student did say this on Twitter and I saw it with my own eyes and I screenshot it. Um, but they're advising student who's received their AP score if the score is much lower than they thought it would be, um, they're recommending talking to the student's AP teacher who should have a copy of the student's responses. The teacher can advise on why the work received the AP score it did or request a rescore. So basically, if the teacher is confused as well, um, they can always request a rescore on the student's behalf. Um, it's available to any student who receives a one or a two. So if you've got a three, it's not available. If the AP teacher is not available, the student can call AP services at 888-225-5427. That's 888-225-5427 um, to talk to them about the idea of getting a rescore. Whether or not this actually will yield anything of value, I don't know. Um, what I do know is this is what the College Board has tweeted out. I would not hold my breath, but hey, worth a try if you think that something went awry for you. Um, today, we're going to be answering your questions, but before we get to that, those segments, um, we wanted to talk about great activities for students who are interested in becoming doctors, and um, I have the perfect person to talk to us about that. Um, it's Lauren DeProspero, who is my colleague here at College Coach and also happens to be a former director of admissions at two different medical schools, um, Stanford and Columbia, so we know that she knows her stuff. Hi, Lauren. How are you? Hi, Beth. I'm good. Thanks good. for having me. Absolutely. Well, I don't know who else I might have who could possibly talk through this um, with more insight and knowledge than you. So thanks for thanks for joining us for this this question. Um, I think my first question for you is, what should a student who's considering the pre-med path do when they get to campus? So you're a brand new college student. You arrive on campus. What are some things that you would recommend students do? Yeah, so I think the first thing that they should do is contact their pre-med advisor, right? Might be assigned an advisor, but this specific pre-med advisor would help you with a number of different things. 
So the pre-med advisor may be in many different forms on campus. Um, it could be one person performing this role in the career development office. Maybe it's a few people in a pre-professional office. It could be the head of the academic department. Um, but this pre-med advisor can be very helpful in considering which courses to take, but also can help you understand what medical schools are going to expect from you, you know, including those healthcare experiences, right? So they can offer advice based on your interests. They can connect you with individuals and organizations that fit those interests. And then the second thing I would do is to explore opportunities on campus, right? What clubs are available? Are there opportunities within the local community? Right, find out how students secure research opportunities on campus. And just think about how you want to create opportunities for yourself during those four years using the resources that are at your fingertips on campus. Yeah, what I love about that advice in particular is that <clears throat> go see that expert on campus. That should be the first thing that you do if this is your goal. Mm -hmm. And we talk to a lot of students who want to go to medical school. And a lot of times I'll hear from them, well, I'm going to be a pre-med major. Well, that's not really a thing. Right. Um, pre-med is something that you are planning. It's a path you're taking, but you're going to major in something different. And that pre-med advisor, that's really kind of your touch point when you think about that pre-med path. So yeah, I exactly. love that advice. In terms of, um, as there are so many options that are going to be available to students on college campuses, at least hopefully, <laughs> if they're on those college campuses. Um, so what areas should students aim to develop? So how should they narrow down the options as they think about them? Yeah, so there are two areas that medical schools are going to be specifically looking for in an application. And those are research and clinical exposure. So for research, the expectations around that are going to vary by medical school. So some medical schools will expect a very high level of and commitment to research. Others will expect to see it as part of preparation for medical school, but you know, really won't expect you to be say an author on a paper or have devoted your whole undergraduate time to research. And one way that you can tell how important research might be to a medical school is to look at their mission statement. If they're very clearly stating that research is part of their core miss mission, right, they're likely going to be looking for a significant research experience. Um, you know, obviously, you know, walking onto campus this fall, you don't know what medical schools will be on your list, right? So my advice mm -hmm. is to find a research opportunity when you're ready, try it out, right? You may love it, and that might be what you devote a lot of your time to um, in your undergraduate, um, or you might not, and that's okay. And you don't need to be starting that research in your first semester, in your first year, but more keeping an eye out for when it makes sense to incorporate it in your um, undergraduate experience. Right. Because if you don't love research, if you try it out and you don't love it, then you don't have to worry about the medical schools that really want to see it. Maybe you just don't apply to those medical schools exactly. because it's probably not a fit, right? Exactly. And then you have that experience for the schools that want to see it, but it doesn't need to be a huge part of what they're looking for. Right, um, right. And then for clinical experience, you know, this is an area that the expectations are going to be high for all medical schools, right? There's no set requirement for number of hours spent or, you know, it's not that students have to spend each semester involved in patient interactions, but what they want is that this to be deeper involvement and, you know, the deeper the involvement, the more consistent the experience, the more the applicant will grow. And in turn, the admissions committee will feel confident that there is a solid understanding of the profession that the applicant is seeking to join, right? And so some examples of clinical exposure are shadowing doctors, 
volunteering at hospice, volunteer EMT, hospital scribe, you know, even primary caretaker for an ill family member or friend are all things that are considered clinical experiences. That's kind of cool. I don't think I realized if you were considered a primary caretaker of someone in your own personal circle, that that would be considered that way. So that's, um, that is, goes right up there with that. I learn something new from my colleagues every time I do this show. So that's mm -hmm. super interesting. Um, and why is, why is that so important? I think you, you kind of said that, you know, they're looking for an understanding. So, so why that breadth or such depth and exposure to clinical experiences as a medical school? Why would that be important to you? Yeah, because it provides the applicant insight into the everyday life of a doctor, right? Everybody jokes, you know, Grey's Anatomy or ER are not good <laughs> examples, right? Of no. being a doctor, right? You have to think about like all of the other things that go into that. And so by actually spending time um, in these experiences, you get to see what it's actually like. You get to talk to the doctors, right? It's not just shadowing. It's not like you're just watching, you're having those conversations. But even to just break down some of the examples that I just gave, right? A caretaker, you know, learns the details of chronic or severe illness and learns empathy, right? A mm -hmm. hospice volunteer learns how providers support patients and their families during one of the hardest times. An EMT mm -hmm. is exposed to any number of, you know, medical emergencies in a variety of situations. And so these experiences really develop and then demonstrate the traits that, you know, anybody would want in their doctor, which is what, you know, medical schools are looking for. Yeah, I often think what my mom um, was ill for a few months and in the hospital before she passed away. And those were obviously terrible months, but also just all that time I spent in the hospital, the overwhelming sense for me every single day was why would anyone want to do this for a living? And um, you don't want to discover that you feel the same way after you've already gone to medical school and spent all that money and devoted all that time. And now you're actually practicing and you're thinking, why did I do this? This is not very fun. Exactly. So, or, you know, fun is probably the wrong word, but <laughs> you know what I mean. Yeah. Um, what else, anything else that college students could con should consider as they're going along that, that pre-med path while they're in college? Yeah, so, you know, like I said, they expect to see research and exposure to patient care, but it may come as a surprise to a lot of people, but they're very interested in how you engage outside of healthcare and outside of research, right? Because if you think mm -hmm. about it, the doctor-patient relationship is a human relationship, right? That requires connecting on a personal level. And so those interpersonal skills are key to being a successful doctor. Right. And medical schools are very interested in identifying those applicants. Right. You want to be able to go in and have a conversation with your doctor, not just about the treatment, but being able to make small talk, to be able to connect on, you know, something positive and great that's happening in your life um, or the things that aren't. Right. So there are a lot of these soft schools. Um, skills and you know medical schools are looking for certain core competencies and a list of those can be found on the um, AMCAS, so that's A-M-C-A-S website that lists mm -hmm. through a lot of the core competencies that medical schools are looking for. But you know these activities can be anything from playing the violin to tutoring students, participating in theater productions, you know, being a residential assistant, so an RA. Right? It doesn't really matter what the activity is so long as it really aligns with the applicant's interests um, and may not have anything to do with medicine or really have anything to do with, with certain skills. Right, It's always fun to see you know, a student who put down that they enjoyed baking 
right? And that they would mm -hmm. bake for the entire dorm whenever they had the opportunity or whatever it was that they did, right? Those things still matter because they humanize the person. And so I think it's about being deeply involved for a long period of time, you know, is so much more than collecting a variety of shorter term commitments. And to be sure, you don't want your whole experiences section to yes. be made up of baking and basketball, right? You still have to have those research and patient care experiences, but don't be afraid to develop those other areas, right? We loved when someone said they played an obscure instrument because maybe we wanted somebody in the orchestra at our school, right? <laughs> and it's not the reason that they got in, but you play the tuba and that's kind of awesome. So there are lots of things that, you know, for to feel good about yourself for, you know, mental health reasons, for your own personal development, just don't just focus on medicine, give yourself the opportunity to do the things that you enjoy, because chances are, there are transferable skills there. Right, you never just want to be in a lab 100% of your time, because that's not what being a doctor will be like. Exactly. So I love that advice. Um, so we've talked about this all from the perspective of college students arriving on campus, what can high school students take away? Are, are there any of these activities that they could be doing and how important in your perspective, from your perspective, is it that students be super engaged in these types of activities while they're in high school? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that high school students can do many of these same activities, right? The limiting factor might be age. You know, mm -hmm. it could be the coursework they have under their belt. Um, you know, I've worked with students who have become EMTs, who have shadowed doctors, participated in research. Um, but, you know, unlike medical school, there's no requirement that students do these just because they're interested in a pre-med path, right? Mm -hmm. Colleges aren't expecting to see this, right? What you, how you're developing in high school, you know, be, be slightly different than how you're going to go in college and, and really devote to that pre-med path. So if you are interested, you really want to learn more, you want to have these experiences, right? Look into doing some of these. I think that that's absolutely fine. And, you know, the key to keep in mind is that medical schools won't really know what you did in high school because that's not what they're interested in, right? They're interested right. in college. If you take a gap year or glide year or two or three, right? They're interested in those experiences, not something as far back as high school. So don't do anything because you think medical school is going to see it, right? Do what is organic and of interest to you so that you, you know, feel good about your experiences and you're growing in the way that you want to. Um, and really, you know, just making sure that you are contributing to that larger narrative of who you are, um, you know, find, find what works for you within that. And it could be that you did shadowing your pediatrician and the rest of the time you do something else. That's absolutely fine too. Yeah. And I think I would really second the idea that you can't really start preparing for medical school in high school. I mean, I guess that's not entirely true, but your message is a really good one that you don't need to be doing all these things in high school. It won't be part of your medical school application. Um, perhaps you will do some in high school and then build on them in college, and there's nothing wrong with that, but there are there feel, it felt to me anyway, when I worked at Penn, that there were so many very bright students in that applicant pool who wanted to major in a science and become a doctor that it actually became in, in, a, in a way, you know, this is a process that values standing out and it made those students in many ways blend in. And so, you know, one piece of advice that I often give to students who are, think they want to be doctors is how can you look at health from a different angle? You know, can you mm -hmm. look at public health? Can you look at some other 
element of this and maybe explore that a little bit. Make sure, A, that helps you make sure that, yeah, you know what, I really do want to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. It also helps you broaden your perspective a little. And I think that, um, like you were saying about doing activities outside of being in the lab, it all just makes you a more well-rounded human. And um, you're not going to be a doctor tomorrow. So broaden yourself, learn as much as you can about a lot of things, and then you can eventually get there. So. Yeah. Lauren, thank you so much for joining today. I really appreciate it. And this was yeah. super insightful. Yeah, it's always a pleasure. All right. Um, well, we're going to be back shortly and we are answering all of the listener questions that we have received in the last couple of weeks. So don't go away. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back, everybody. I am super excited. Again, I am super bummed that we're not videotaping today's podcast because our next guest, Shannon Vasconcelos, is a star of Good Morning America and the Today Show, really does deserve <laughs> the video platform. But unfortunately, today, we're just going to be blessed with her vocal talent. Um, she also, in addition to being, you know, star of television, she's also my colleague and a former financial aid officer at BU and Tufts. Hi, Shannon. Welcome to the show. Hi, Beth. Even after Good Morning America and the Today Show, getting in a college coach conversation is still my favorite show to be on. Well, I certainly hope so. It's the one that <laughs> gave you your start. So don't forget right. the little people. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Well, this is a segment that if you've listened to the show for any amount of time, you know we do usually once or twice a month. Um, we take your questions and we, we gather them from a number of different places. First of all, you could email them to us and I can give you that email address right now. I am uh, getting in.voiceamerica.gmail.com. So again, it's getting in.voiceamerica.gmail.com. I would say that most of the time these days, we are getting our questions from Facebook, so you could follow us on Facebook. We're also getting them on Instagram, and um, we have a Facebook, uh, sorry, an Instagram account at College Coach BH on Instagram. So you might want to check us out. All right, so Shannon, we have a few finance questions today. I think you have a few more for me than I have for you, but why don't we start with one of yours? Um, this one comes to us from Ming who says, we received the award letter for my daughter's first year, and while we can manage this year's costs, we're trying to decide if we can swing the cost of this college for four years. Can I expect to receive a similar financial aid package all four years? Yeah, and that is an excellent 
question. So I, I'm glad that you are thinking ahead, Ming, um, because I think it can be when we're talking about money this big, it can be really tempting to just look at that you know, first year's bill or even that just that first semester bill and say, okay, how do I get through this? How do I come up with this, you know, $25,000 and not, you know, thinking about the fact that this is actually probably a $100,000 commitment. Mm. Um, so really, really important to, to think about if you can swing the cost for all four years. So in trying to determine that, it can be a little bit tricky because you do only get the uh, financial aid offers one year at a time. So excellent question, you know, can we expect to get this same offer for all four years? And I would say the answer to that question is probably if a few things don't happen. Um, so usually from my experience, colleges try to keep financial aid pretty consistent from year to year if they can. Um, reasons they might not be able to keep it consistent and may have to reduce a financial aid offer would be, number one, if you experience a big change in financial circumstances you know, for the better, you, know, you get a new job making twice as much money, you could mm -hmm. expect the financial aid offer to decrease uh, in, an, in a future year. Um, the other, uh, two other probably big things that can change or specifically reduce financial aid offers uh, in future years. One would be if you happen to have, and I don't think this is the case with Ming, but if you happen to have two kids in college at the same time, and this is you know the second child's financial aid offer, and it's taking into account you have two in college, then when the older child graduates and you only have one in college again, that can result in decreased aid for that child because when you have two or sometimes three in college, they're assuming it's sort of built into the formula that you're splitting your resources two or three ways. But when the older kids graduate and now you can devote all your resources to that one child, they expect you to contribute more and the financial aid could decrease. Um, so that, that's kind of one common reason why financial aid could decrease in future years. And the other one is if your child does not make the grades. Once they get to college, all financial aid has minimum, uh, they call it satisfactory academic progress standards, where you have to maintain a certain GPA and a certain credit load. Um, it, for merit scholarships, those requirements tend to be higher, but even the need-based financial aid that is not merit-based still has some minimum requirements. So I would say Ming, the financial aid offer will probably stay about the same each year if you don't have a big change in finances, if you don't have you know, another child that graduates and assuming your child kind of makes the grades once they get into college. You can probably, it's never a guarantee, but you can probably count on a similar financial aid offer. Um, and if you are anticipating a change in circumstances, like maybe you recently lost your job and you want to figure out will my financial aid increase? So we talked about why it could decrease in the future. Um, I would assume you'd like it to increase in the future. Again, I would say that's probably not going to happen with most schools. I think the kind of the goal is they try and keep it pretty consistent. But if you do experience a big decrease in income or you go from having one child in college to two kids in college, you might 
receive increased aid. You will certainly have increased aid eligibility, but not every school can meet your full financial aid eligibility. So you might have increased need. I'm making air quotes. financial <laughs> need. You can't see me. I'm not on video today. You, you might have increased need, but that doesn't mean every school is going to meet your needs. So if you have something like that, that you're thinking about, you know, I have another kid coming along in two years. Will I get more financial aid? then because you've got to work that into your calculations to figure out if you can afford this school. I would call the financial aid office, set up an appointment to chat with them about that. What can you expect in the future? They probably won't make any guarantees. And I would say particularly in this year where we're in the middle of an economic crisis, schools are really struggling. Um, we have found that has kind of worked to families' advantage this this application cycle this year because schools were really uncertain about filling their class and have been extra generous with financial aid this year but i don't think that they can that can last forever so i think it's a particularly uncertain time but i would say you know if schools have to get less generous in the future i would guess again can't make the guarantee but what they would do is kind of be less generous with incoming students and they would still try and keep uh, continuing student financial aid kind of pretty consistent. They don't want to pull the rug out from anybody. That would be my guess. So that was a very long answer to a short question. <laughs> short answer is probably it will stay the same, but if you have a change in circumstances, it might change. All right. Okay. And so for you, Beth, I have a question from Leslie. Uh, and this relates to the application requirements at the University of California, which are very specific, <laughs> as you know. Mm -hmm. I had to read this question twice before I figured out what was going on here because of the, the UCs are so specific. Uh, but what Leslie asks is, my son wants to be a film slash art major when he goes to college. His weakest subject is math. His junior year, he will have two APs and two honors classes, but is planning on taking intermediate algebra versus advanced algebra. My question is, is intermediate algebra still considered a college prep course for math C area? And I think this is where the, the UC terminology is coming in. Um, on the description for subject C math, it says topics covered in elementary and advanced algebra. Is intermediate algebra considered covering topics of advanced algebra since they cover same topics but not with the same depth. He is aiming for competitive UCs. Okay, um, so Leslie, I am assuming here, and I know assuming is usually a bad thing, but given how you're already familiar with the A through G course requirements at the University of California, that makes me believe you live in California and your son attends a California high school. and. If that is so, here's where I'm going to blow your mind. If you Google University of California A through G course list, you will come to a site that is run by the University of California where you can actually type in your son's high school's name and it will help you find any course that you he is considering and whether or not it would be considered appropriate for the a through g requirements so if you see it the intermediate algebra on there and according to this website it is considered acceptable for that math um fulfilling that math requirement then you are good to go and i wouldn't worry about it 
Um, the, the one caveat I would say is that when you're aiming for the most selective levels anywhere, whether it's the University of California system or any of the other schools in the country, you do have to keep in mind that the competition will often have done the most rigorous curriculum available. So UCLA, UC Berkeley, um, they're used to seeing kind of the cream of the crop or that's who they are typically admitting. So it, it, on, the, on, on the one hand, the, that course sounds probably completely fine. On the other hand, the one thing you do have to be aware of is that other students who he's gonna be up against may choose the more advanced course. Now, right. if this is not his senior year, and I don't believe it is, he still can, um, you know, he could still do more advanced level math as he continues through. I don't really know where intermediate algebra leads to. Um, my guess is as good as yours in, in terms of, I think it's probably going to be fine. Um, different classes differently, but if the A through G list says it's fine for his high school, then, um, know then you at least know that that's the that that's going to be an acceptable math and you always have to weigh the choices around what is going to allow my child to feel competent and, and is going to be very challenged in all of his other coursework it does make sense that in his weakest area he would opt for slightly less challenge um, and again you know again others may be doing a more challenging level math course but if he takes it and he doesn't do well and it also drags down his other courses, to me it doesn't, it doesn't make sense anyway because he's still not gonna be competitive because presumably other students are gonna be taking that higher level math and doing well in it. So right. you have to just balance your child's individual abilities and needs when you make these course selections. If by some odd Thing, you are you are not in well I shouldn't say odd but if I'm reading this incorrectly and you just happen to know a lot about the A through G course list but you don't live in California mm -hmm. um, you know my guess is that it seems like it would be acceptable to me it's covering the same topics just not in quite the same depth to me that feels like it's no different than say doing honors English versus regular English. You're covering the same things. You're still reading books. You're still writing papers. You're right. just expected to do it at a slightly higher level. So um, all in all, my guess is that that will be fine for you um, or for your son, because it isn't really for you, right? All right, we have <laughs> a few minutes, I think, to get to one more of your questions okay. and I just have to get back to them. Okay. So what, I feel, this comes to us from Ganesh, who says, I feel like I should be saving for college for my daughter, but I'm not sure if it's wise, ah, the age old question. If yes. I save for college, won't I get less financial aid? This is just an evergreen question it, for you. It, it is, all <laughs> the time we get this question. Um, and I, I absolutely understand why it's confusing to folks. Um, but the truth is, Ganesh, you may get a little less financial aid, but just a little. The way that the financial aid formula works is that it is very heavily weighted towards a family's income. Uh, it's usually, well, you know, whether you qualify or don't qualify for financial aid, 
usually has very, very little to do with the money you've got in the bank, but it has a lot to do with what your income is. Um, incomes are kind of hit at a, a much higher assessment rate than our assets. Um, so to put some quick numbers to it, um, parental assets, assets savings held in the parent's name are assessed at give or take because it's a little more complicated than this but about a five percent assessment rate meaning for every ten thousand dollars you might have saved uh, for your son's college as long as it's in the parent's name for that ten thousand dollars that you've saved you end up losing five hundred dollars of financial aid eligibility so it does cost you maybe a little bit of financial aid but having that $10,000 in savings mm -hmm. certainly helps you pay for college much, much more than the maybe $500 loss of financial aid hurts you. So I would say, don't worry too much about the financial aid effect of saving. It is minimal. Whatever you are able to save will help you much more than it will hurt you. So please save, save, save. Don't hesitate to save. That's the best thing that you can do to financially prepare yourself for college. All right, Shannon, great advice and a question I'm fairly certain we will be answering for as long as we do this podcast, because you're right. Yes. It is, it's a little counterintuitive and yeah. it's something that people talk a lot about. Um, okay, we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to tackle as many of your questions as we can in the time left in our third segment, so don't go away. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts, who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions, offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one -on -one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, we are back and we are answering your questions. Shannon, why don't you fire one at me? Absolutely, and this came in from Christine uh, through her Instagram page. And Christine asks, how much should you engage with admissions officers who email you directly? Interesting, I usually get this the other way. How much should I try to engage an admissions officer via email? And yes. often the answer is, well, if you don't have anything to say, probably not. But um, right. okay, so I think the first question is, is this a school that you that you or your child wants to attend? And if it is a school that you're really interested in, I do think it makes sense if the admissions officer is reaching out directly to engage. Um, and so this is an opportunity to learn a little bit more about the school. Presumably if they're reaching out, they maybe are asking you questions or perhaps they're sending you information. Um, 
one of the things that we are we talk about a lot on the show is demonstrating interest and there are some schools where that's really important and schools where it's not really part of the the calculation um, however these days your most important way to show interest which is to visit is not really an option and um, in addition to that a lot of schools have started to use um, emails and interactions with websites and with uh, other social media platforms as a way to track, uh, creates kind of a digital footprint for the student and shows the number of times they have sort of digitally visited campus, if you will. Yes. And so engaging with those emails, responding, but then also if there are links in them, clicking on those links, going to visit the sites that are on the um, that they're taking you to, spending some time digging into your areas of interest. So not just sitting there, not doing anything, but going to the places that are really most interesting to you, um, answering questions if the admissions officer is asking any questions of you, and if the email triggers questions for the student, asking those questions back. Um, so I would say, you know, again, it doesn't need to become the student's full-time job and it shouldn't be something where you are, the second you get an email from the admissions officer, you need to respond. Um, but I do encourage students to be checking their email regularly. And as you get into the thick of uh, the college search process and the college application process, probably checking your email at least once a day and trying to engage with those emails from the schools where you are interested. And if you're thinking and you're listening and you're saying, well, no admissions officers are reaching out to me, well, that's okay too. Not all schools yeah. do a lot of individual outreach from admissions officers to students, uh, but they are doing emails. And so if you're curious about getting those emails, the most important thing you can do is go get on their mailing list. And that's an easy yes. thing to do. You could do it today, and I would encourage you to do it today. All right. Perfect. And just Shannon, to throw in a quick plug, since you mentioned it, we do have a blog post fairly recently up there in the last couple months um, called something to the effect of how to demonstrate interest without yes. visiting campus. Um, yes. Because we were getting lots of questions about that as this epidemic got going and all the campuses shut down and nobody could visit. So there's a whole blog post that digs into that in a little bit more detail. So I definitely recommend folks check that out at um, blog.getintocollege.com. Yes, great advice, thank you. Okay, one more question from you. This comes from Neha who says, my son received a federal work study award as part of his financial aid offer, office, offer, sorry. Is this guaranteed work? No, it isn't. Um, so federal work study can be a little bit confusing. It is um, a need-based aid program. So you will see it on a financial aid offer, but you don't receive it kind of in cash like you would like a grant or a scholarship or even a student loan where they just take, you know, whatever amount of money you've been awarded and deposit it to your student account. That is not the way work study works. If you are given, awarded, doing air quotes again, I do, <laughs> I do that a lot. I don't realize how much I do it till I think about how ridiculous I look when no one is looking at me. Um, but if you are awarded like a $3,000 federal work study award, all that means is that you have the opportunity to find a job, usually on campus, of course, which is tricky right now. Um, you still have to work the 
hours, you need to get hired for the job, you need to work the hours, and then you would get paid in just a regular, you know, weekly or biweekly paycheck like you would from any other job. Um, so that, you know, I wouldn't count on that $3,000 work study award to, you know, pay the tuition bill. Uh, it is not available to you immediately. It is not really guaranteed to you at all. You just have this opportunity to get a job and earn that much money over the course of the school year. Um, and again, I think federal work study is particularly tricky this year, uh, depending on what college you're going to and what their plans are for the fall semester. Are they opening in person or are they totally online? Um, you know, a lot of the work study jobs are, you know, working at the library on campus or the dining hall on campus. If those things aren't open, there are just many fewer work study jobs available. Uh, and I know that that schools are trying hard to find work in a virtual way for their work study students, uh, but it's just a lot trickier this year. So I would absolutely recommend um, going to the school's website. They'll all have like a work study office or a student employment office page on their website where there will likely be job listings. And I would just get on that as soon as possible uh, and get a job in the works uh, as soon as you can over the summer now do it, start checking that website. Don't necessarily wait till mm -hmm. you arrive on campus uh, because a number of the jobs may be already taken at that, that point. So it's not guaranteed. So get on the website now, start searching for a job uh, and, and uh, hope that they do have one for you uh, because I think that they will be more uh, limited in scope this, this year. All right. Okay, and the next question for you is from Todd, and he says, my rising senior homeschooled fifth through 10th grade. She attended a private school for 11th grade with about 35 students in her class and plans to graduate from there. The school has good college counseling, although my daughter has only had a year to be known there. She did well this past year, but she's very quiet and not showy, so she sometimes flies under the radar. Her brother homeschooled through 12th grade, and I wrote, I'm sorry, I, as dad, Todd, wrote his common mm -hmm. app guidance counselor letter. Is there any reason for me to submit a second guidance counselor letter for my daughter's college applications? Uh, so, Tati, it's a good question because whenever you have homeschooled students, my advice is always sort of, more is more when it comes to homeschooled. Mm -hmm. However, because your daughter is doing two years at a traditional school, um, that advice changes somewhat. And what I would suggest here, especially because you specifically say that the counseling at her school is quite good, what I would do instead is um, I would ask to meet with a counselor and discuss your concerns about that there hasn't been a whole lot of time to get to know your daughter at the school. And um, some schools will ask for what's called a brag sheet, where the counselor will ask parents to fill out some information so they can share the things that they would want the counselor to know about their student. Um, and ideally, if you have to fill one of those out, parents, anyone who's listening, want to include, you want to show, don't tell, which we're always talking about with essays. And you want to include examples, so you can say my child is really, um, 
you know, intellectual, you want examples of that. That's a bad example, but that's just, you want to show why you, or why you think this is, say that it's true. Um, and so what I would say is that maybe what you want to do is draft the letter you would have written if she had continued to homeschool 12th grade. And that could be a brag sheet that you share with her counselor and just share exactly what you did with us, which is, hey, I wrote a letter from my son who homeschooled all the way through senior year. I realize that's not appropriate here, but I thought I could share with you what I would have written and use a use it however you wish. If you find it helpful, great. And if you don't, then no big deal. Uh, I think in that way, you will really support the counseling office in their efforts to support your daughter and you won't overstep, which I think writing a second letter would, would really fall into that category of overstep. Right. Perfect. And I think we're out of finance questions. So I have another one for you. I think this, we are. This one's from Leslie. Uh, and she, he or she says, due to COVID, my daughter's school is only allowing students to take three courses in the fall and three in spring. Each semester counts as a year. She is already bored and wants more and is interested in taking a community college course. My question is, in terms of getting into college, will community college Will a community college art course be considered an academic course, even if she's taking another art course at high school? Does it count towards academic rigor in the eyes of admissions? Also, does it count towards her high school GPA? Uh, I don't know if this makes a difference, but she's interested in being a film or photography major in college. So this is pursuing her interests. Okay, so essentially, Leslie, what's happening here is the school is moving to what we would call a block system. So what that means is that instead of taking six courses all year long, instead you're going to, she's going to take three um, courses one semester that will essentially fit all of a year's worth of, of curriculum into that one semester, and then she'll do three more the second semester. So um, Assuming she's doing math, science, English, history, and foreign language, whatever extra she wants to do is fine. Um, likely, most colleges are not really going to consider an art course to be an academic course. Now, granted, if she's applying to be an art or an art major in some way, they may look at that um, a little differently. If she's applying to art school, that would, of course, be different as well. Um, if she's applying to a more traditional school, where she's gonna major in art, but it's not based on her portfolio, but on her high school curriculum up to this point, they're unlikely to consider that art course as an academic course. However, as you note, it is pursuing her interests. And so there's certainly nothing wrong with taking an art course at a community college if that's something that interests her. Uh, does it count toward academic rigor? Not really. No, I wouldn't. Um, and because at many schools, it wouldn't necessarily count in as part of her GPA. Um, mm -hmm. Generally speaking, when you go off campus to take courses, if the high school hasn't sanctioned it, if they don't have an actual dual enrollment program of uh, some kind, right. then what you're going to do is you're going to just, she could submit the transcript from the community college or have the community college submit the transcript, but it will not be calculated into any kind of GPA. Now, if there is an articulation agreement and the school would take that, le that grade and put it on their high school transcript, then sure, it might actually be calculated into the G GPA. Some schools are gonna recalculate that GPA, 
I know that um, we did that when I was at Penn. I know a lot of my colleagues' schools did that. I know that UMass, which is our state institution, recalculates GPAs. And generally what they do when they recalculate is they unweight grades and they only focus on the academic courses. And as I've said, I generally, unless it's an AP level art course, it's probably not gonna be considered an academic course. Right. Um, if you're worried about increasing rigor, my advice there would be maybe look at online courses that are more academic in nature and where she might get a letter grade. It's still, unless it's sanctioned by the high school, there are some high schools where they make a bunch of online courses available, um, and in which case you get a grade and it goes on your transcript. So unless it's something like that, it will be likely the same thing, where she can get a trans, she can get a copy of her grade and the transcript from that institution and send it in, but it won't be considered part of her academic GPA from high school. Um, couple of places where you can do that or where she could look into BYU independent study has a number of courses students can take online. Uh, other places, Laurel Springs, uh, the UC system has something called UC Scout, which is free if you are a California resident, but not limited to California residents. Um, and she might also check with her college counselor or her school counselor at the high school to see if they have any recommendations. Um, but if she really just wants to take an art course, because she already has um, six courses at the high school over the, over the year, I see um, no issues at all with her doing uh, a course. All right, that is all we have time for today. Um, Shannon, thank you so much for joining and answering questions and giving me questions. I appreciate it as always. No problem, my pleasure. Um, also, thank you to Lauren, who was our, my guest earlier on the show. Next week, Ian is hosting. Uh, he's gonna be talking about the Common App essay. He's gonna cover tuition installment plans. And he's also gonna be talking about strengths coaching. So if you're wondering what the heck that's all about, well, you uh, tune in next week. Uh, also, we mentioned earlier that we are on uh, Facebook and we're on Instagram. I am on Instagram. I have not posted in a while. You can follow me at, at ElizabethHeaton92, but I am gearing up to start posting a little bit more frequently. So if you want to follow me, I think you'll find some new stuff there. Um, soon. We are here every th Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern and 1 p.m. Pacific. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.